Hi, my name is Evan. I use he, him pronouns. My name is Ian, and I use they, them pronouns. My name is Emily. I use she, her pronouns. And this is If the Shoe Fits. It's a podcast about Cinderella stories. Today we're talking about Into the Woods, which is not exclusively a Cinderella story. And we're joined by Emily, who is my friend and roommate, a different Emily from last time. <laughs> the other Emily. The other em- One of the other Emilies. We need to get a battle of the Emilies at some point. Do we? <laughs> it's okay. I'm not the competitive. We can both exist. <laughs> Emily was involved in a production of uh, Into the Woods uh, on the stage management team. Yeah, I was an assistant stage manager. I was one of three assistant stage managers for the University of Pittsburgh. It was one of their main stage productions. We actually all have connections to Into the Woods. I was in a production of it in middle school as Cinderella's father slash the mysterious man. And I'm going to be in a production very soon. Emily, what's your favorite Cinderella story? That's a hard one because there's so many of them, as you know. Uh, I really love Ella Enchanted. Uh, I also really like the Selena Gomez version that, like, Disney Channel made. Yes. So Into the Woods is a stage musical that premiered on Broadway in 1987. Uh, It has musical lyrics by Stephen Sondheim and a book by uh, James Lapine, who also directed the Broadway production. It blends together a whole group of fairy tales. Well, actually, um, maybe better to let you, Emily, try to synopsize. Do you have the phone you can touch? I will get the timer out. Great. So do you think you can do it in one minute? If I talk really, really fast. Yeah, that's like 30 seconds per act. You got this. You got this. All right. On your marks, get set. Go. We open into the woods with three families of characters. We have the baker and the baker's wife. They want a kid. We have Jack and his mother with the cow, and they are poor. And then we have Cinderella, who we all know. Um, and then there's also the riddle, Little Red Riding Hood as a character and a witch that lives next door to the bakers. And the witch is like, oh, I need you guys to like get some items from the woods so that you can have a baby and so that I will have this curse lifted. So everyone goes into the woods for different things, and then the baker and the baker wife are searching for the items um and then at the end of the act um essentially they feed all of these items to the cow um and the witch becomes beautiful and young again um end of act one act two everyone has like gotten what they want but then a troll comes not a troll a giant comes into the kingdom and is like starts destroying shit and a bunch of people die and the fairy tales are like not so cool anymore and then they sing a lot of like sad songs um yeah that's a minute that's pretty good that's most of it <laughs> okay that's cool. most of it i uh, i guess i'd point out that Rapunzel's also in the story, yes. kind of, but that's basically it. The whole first act is all the stories as we know them, and then the second act is like, here's what happens after, mm-hmm. which can be a really like grim, dark, edgelord sort of thing that I think some people do where it's like, what if everyone was sad later? And this this doesn't play that quite that way. There's also a narrator, which I think is like really interesting story-wise, how they utilize the narrator, and especially how... The narrator helps signal the shift in act two, really like turning all of the fairy tales over on their head and Mm -hmm. like, you know, shifting a lot of the tropes that we're familiar with in fairy tales. Yeah, right. The use of the narrator in the first act sort of feels like, well, of course there has to be a narrator because all these stories are told in this omniscient third voice. And then in the second act, there's this turning point where the narrator is sacrificed. The characters on stage become aware of him. They throw him into the action and he dies. 
uh, is killed by the giant. See, it's interesting. I always think that they're aware of him the whole time. They're just like, we're just letting the story play out because he's right. kind of in charge. It's always interesting to see how, especially after the original production, how they incorporate the narrator and how they play with the narrator. Well, it's become very popular in more recent productions to uh, make the narrator a kid. I've yes. seen a couple of the narrator's a kid, and That's you get the really feeling that he is um, like the baker's son. But the baker can't have children. Well, but like, like it's like, like it's everyone is like uh, it's a framing device. Yeah. Oh, but later on, but then how do they explain the death? I like, don't know. I haven't seen one of these productions. So, <laughs> spoiler. So you're talking? Are you talking about the open air production? I am talking about the open air production starring recent Emmy winner Hannah Waddingham. <laughs> oh, from Ted Lasso. Yes, from uh, Ted Lasso. Wait, who does she play in Ted Lasso? The oh, the, I, she the played one the British, British, the one British lady, the blonde lady. Rebecca, like the the powerful boss lady? Yes, probably. Uh, The open air production begins with you hear like two parents fighting and you see this kid like running through the forest, supposedly running away. And then uh, he kind of begins playing in the forest. He has these dolls and each of these dolls symbolize one of the characters. And, you know, we do the entire first act of Into the Woods. The kid's a narrator. It's just how it normally is. Act two... When, spoiler, the narrator gets given to the giant, you know, the kid does go away. The kid does die. Mm -hmm. But the end of the show, before children will listen, we see the kid on the ground. It's been a dream. Mm. Yeah, he's been dreaming. All of Act 2, at least. He died in his own dream. He died in his own dream. And his dad, who is played by the actor who plays the baker. Right, of course. But the guy that's playing the baker is also still, like, technically the baker. Because, like, you have the baker's wife talking to him still and, like... It's a really, like, beautiful, precious moment. And I feel like I'd have to see it to fully understand. Yeah. When I, one of the things that I feel like, I mean, because if we're out of the dream sequence for children to listen, then, so, spoilers, 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 all of this is spoilers. In Into the Woods, the baker's wife dies, and presumably that only happened in the dream. But she comes, she's back as a ghost in the final scene, giving parental advice to the baker. Mm. In the open air production, is that played as just like the parents have found the kid and she's just talking? Or is it, is she a ghost? Or is it unclear? It's kind it's of theatrical. A, it's theatrical. It's uh-huh. kind of unclear. But Interesting. it's still powerful in a way. I've been meaning to watch the open air production because they filmed it. It's on Broadway HD, I think. Yes, it's on Broadway yeah. HD. So. so. Or as the British would say, HD. Well, and what I think is wild is that it's the British production of that that was filmed, but the American production starred Amy Adams and Jesse Mueller. Yeah, and Donna Murphy. And Donna Murphy. Who did Amy Adams play? The baker's wife. But Donna Murphy, who played the villain in Tangled, is just reprising her role as the witch. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, it's good casting. People say she was very strong as the witch. One of the things that I really appreciated when rewatching it to the woods was that I feel like you could tell this story. We should, by the way, say that we watched the stage adaptation. Oh, we didn't watch the 2014 movie. No, we watched the original Broadway stage production, which we have all seen the movie. We have also. seen, yeah, we have also seen the movie, but no, I haven't seen it recently. It's just not as good. Yeah, that's how I feel about it. I remember being worried that the movie would kill the market of people watching the stage version because yeah. I found the stage version so lovely and I grew up watching it and I hope that people still do watch it but I bet a lot of people choose to watch the movie instead no I think people still choose to watch the stage show one because the stage show is now like part of the theater 
I think it depends on if they're theater people or not. I, I think you're right. I guess. Because right. if you're not a theater person, you're going to watch the movie. But totally. it's the same as, like, any theater person or non-theater person. Like, if they watch Hairspray or if they watch, like, any of those other musical movies. Like, mm-hmm. I do, though. I, I really liked, since this is a Cinderella podcast, what they did in the movie with On the Steps of the Palace. Like, actually having her on the steps of the palace, like, in this frozen moment in time where she's actually stuck in the steps. Yeah. It's like, I was like, okay, like, I, this is cool. This would be a lot harder to do on the stage or, like, mm-hmm. this is something that they don't often to do on stage. It was really different and really beautiful. Yeah, the, um... Visually. The way that the stage musical is written, uh, there's a lot of characters running on stage and then explaining what just happened to them while they were off stage in a very Shakespearean or even like Greek theater way. You're mm-hmm. like, just off stage, the craziest thing is happening, you know. I mean, that's a Sondheim thing to begin with. Uh, yeah, but also I think it goes back to the roots of Into the Woods as being about storytelling in some ways, mm-hmm. that, it, that the characters all storytell directly to the audience. And then in the movie, they, to cinematize that, I suppose, they are often telling the story to somebody. There's another character that they're telling the story to, and, and we see what they're describing as well. Uh-huh. Uh, usually in flashback, but in the case of the Unsept of the Palace. It's happening in real time. Right. One more thing just to close, that I wanted to say just to close out, general thoughts about the musical as a whole. When I was rewatching it with you guys, it occurred to me that you really could tell a, like fairy tales, but they're all intermingling story in a way that's so much less intellectual than what Into the Woods is. Like, there's some really interesting deep themes in there, which I respect it for. Like, it's a show you can come, that I felt like I can come back to as an adult and still get something out of. I don't know if you guys feel the same. Um, I've only really consumed Into the Woods as an adult, mm-hmm. so I don't know that I have a real comparison. Mm-hmm. One of the stranger themes to me continues to be the wolf. I don't know if I'd call that a theme. Well, I mean, okay, so Little Red Riding Hood as a story is a coming of age. It's the, what, isn't the red cape supposed to symbolize it's supposed to be sexual puberty blood? And yeah, the, like... Yeah. And it, well, and the, like, you talk about stories having a moral, and this musical certainly plays a lot with what the morals of all the stories are. The moral of Little Red Riding Hood story is don't talk to strangers. But it certainly certainly comes across sexually that there's this young girl talking to this older man, potentially. It just, it seems so out of place for me in, like, the story of the rest of the Into the Woods of, like, how does she really learn, like, like, does it really affect her character later on in the story? Like, I know she has a little more chutzpah with, like, the knife and the wolf's cape, Mm -hmm. but it feels to me just like, I don't know. I don't know. It's just also the full penis in the costume is just makes it so much weirder. Yeah. I don't know how I didn't realize as a kid, but there is completely a penis in the wolf costume. Yeah. And even we did not have a penis in the wolf costume for the show that I was um, uh, assistant stage (laughs) managing for. But there was like the dance was very like we had more choreography in it and it was still very like creepy and like also like sexual undertones and i'm just like this is strange to me i'll give you a warning about the open air production then because it gets worse oh no it's worse in that one but i guess my my question is like why is it necessary what is the point? Yeah, yeah why is that necessary yeah yeah i um in the larger in the larger into the woods right because so much of people 
when people talk about the themes of Into the Woods, one of the themes that's easiest to like really dig into is parents and children, right? The, that the main narrative we're following, the baker and his wife, are trying to, to go through all the travails of the first act in order to have a child and have a family. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of the other shows come along those lines too, right? Like Cinderella is a story about parental neglect in this version. The Rapunzel story is also about uh, parental neglect. Um, I'm, I'm a little iffy on the Cinderella being about parental neglect. Well, but, but, more, but more so in this version than in other versions, certainly, because um, her father's still alive and sees the things that are happening to her, at least potentially is aware of them and isn't doing anything about it. And then also the Jack's relationship with his mother is the cornerstone of that story as well. So in that context, uh, Little Riding Hood doesn't have any parents who are in the story. She has a relationship with her grandmother, who is just a comedy character later in the show. Well, and she also does, she has parents, but we never see them. Yeah, yeah, it does feel like it happens because it's a famous fairy tale. And once we get to act two, when they sort of, everyone's sort of set loose to do their own thing, she sort of becomes a de facto child uh, for, at first, the baker and his wife, as they, like, uh, offer to guide her in the, like, because the woods have been shifted and ruined by the giant tramping around. So they offer help guide her to her grandmother's house because she's fleeing because her uh, parents' house got knocked in. Mm-hmm. But other than that, she doesn't relate too much to to the big themes. Any final thoughts about Into the Woods as a whole? It's truly, I think, Sondheim's best show. Ah, bold. I, That's bold. I, I think it's his best show uh-huh. by far. I, I love some Sweeney Todd. I love some night music. Mm-hmm. But this just like... I think it hits all the yeah. sweet spots. It's a lot there. And it also, it's very, like, accessible. I will say, yeah, it's the yeah. most, like, universal, like, mm-hmm. accessible show that, like, even even if you don't understand what's happening, you'd be like, fairy tales. Right. I mean, the fact that whether or not we should have, like, my middle school put on a production of this show. We did the full show. Right. Um, yeah, this is probably his most well-produced show. Yeah, I can't picture a middle school doing a different Sondheim. Pacific Overtures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I guess let's dive into the Cinderella of it all. Uh, you don't think this is a story about parental neglect? I don't think it. I don't think that's her story. Okay, tell me more. I think her story is about finding herself and finding who she is as a person. Mm-hmm. One of the things that um, is so fascinating about Cinderella is just how uninterested in the prince she is. Yes. In this whole entire thing. Mm-hmm. And I think her her arc throughout the whole show is not do I like this guy, but like, who am I? I'm still trying to figure myself out. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is what I want. Wait, no, this isn't what I want. And by the end, she kind of figures out in her own way what she wants. She's like, I'm kind of happy just being me and just doing my thing. I don't, her last line is, I actually kind of like cleaning. <laughs> Right. Which which is a a weird joke in the context of like some of the Cinderella's we've seen, certainly, but it's a moment that is needed in Into the Woods because it's such a dark moment in some ways. You need to break up that tension. We have the two stepsisters, we have the stepmother, but we also have the father, as I alluded to before, who is a drunkard in this version. Right. Because this is an adaptation of the Grimm Brothers Cinderella, which we I mean usually see the Perot. Mm-hmm. Uh, if not exclusively see the pro. And there's a lot of things that come along with that, especially considered towards the end. But also we get multiple balls over three nights. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, the stepmother tries to cut off bits of the stepsister's feet in order to get them into the slipper. Yeah, we get the blood in the shoe. Mm -hmm. Oh, we also have um, Cinderella's mother who is 
In a tree. In a tree. She's a, tree. not like sitting in a tree, but she's like, her ghost lives in a tree. Mm-hmm. Like Pocahontas. <laughs> Didn't she like plant a tree at her mother's grave and then watered it with her tears? Yes. She does. Exactly. Yeah. Her yeah. love for her mother. Uh, and it's magic. And it's not magic or it's like the ghost of her mom. Yeah. Yeah. And some of the magic that happens for her happens that way. That the, the tree is... Like, gives her the dress and that kind of thing. The other magic that happens is her ability to talk to birds. Yes. Which is maybe because she's so good and kind? I'm not sure. <laughs> Unclear. She, she just can talk to birds. Yeah. Which she uses to her advantage. And no one else can, and it's never explained. Yep. <laughs> she can... Er, the way she talks to birds is like this. Ah. 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 That moment was uh, very strange. It's also how Snow White talks to birds in the Disney movie, right? Mm. Yeah. So maybe maybe it's just a vocal cadence and exercise where you can talk. Well, that's how she summons the birds at the beginning of the show. But later in the show, they just show up and she talks to them out loud, just normally in English. In English, yeah. And they respond in chirping, and she gets it. Yeah. The other thing is that at the end of the first act, her bird friends pack out the eyes of her stepsisters, who are then blind for the entire second act, because grim fairy tales are violent. We, you would say they're grim. <laughs> you might say, got, yeah, uh huh. <laughs> you might. Is that how we get the word? Is that how we get the word grim? Is it from? no? Because their last name was grim. No, no, no. I get the joke, but is that the etym- etymology of the usage of the word grim in it might be. English? Jumping back to her being less interested in the prince than in other versions, we see her story through the way she describes it to uh, the baker's wife, who she meets in the woods three nights in a row as she's fleeing the palace. And so she sings a song called uh, A Very Nice Prince. Yes. Where the baker's wife is trying to like get information out of her about what the prince is like, because she's interested in royalty, and maybe princes specifically. And... Cinderella keeps being like, oh, well, the food was nice. And when I entered, they trumpeted. And and the prince? But the prince. He did nothing but oh, dance. the prince. Well, he's tall. <laughs> Is that all? I think it's interesting that it's, like, very clear that she's not thinking about the prince that much. And she knows that he's clearly enamored with her Mm -hmm. but is very unsure about how to feel about him like she keeps running away from him yeah and people keep bringing up how weird it is like both the prince and the baker's wife are like why would you run from a prince yeah and she sort of like loosely is like well if you knew who i really was you know it's also the first time that we get her running away because she's just unsure and not oh i have to make it home before my step family yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's never explicitly in there. Right. The Seth family is not a huge force in this because sometimes they're really, you know, being cruel to her all the time. But we meet them at the top and... She, I mean, she gets slapped by one of the sisters. Right. But it's not a huge moment. It's not a big... They could have made that slap much larger. Yeah. It's almost comedy. It's not a like... Very pantomime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Cinderella's big song in the first act is on the steps of the palace. And it's... Oh, after the third night. And she's explaining how she came to leave her shoe behind. And the whole song is her recounting to us, the audience, how she made this decision once she got her shoe stuck to leave the shoe and not like grab it and run off with it. What's interesting is that she says, you know what your decision is, which is not to decide. You'll just leave him a clue. For example, a shoe. And then there's a great like rhyming run. And then see what he'll do. And then see what he'll do. Now it's he and not you who is stuck uh, with a shoe in in the the goo. And you've learned something too, which is a good, it's a good, I'm a fan of the composer. (laughs) (laughs) And I, we almost never see like that moment framed as her deciding not to decide. 
it's either like I've made a mistake and left my shoe and not realized, or I have intentionally put the shoe down so that you can come find me. Mm. But mostly it's the first one. It's interesting that she is letting it up to him, mm-hmm. right? It's she's, she's self-possessed because she is thinking about what she wants rather than just like being like, Oh, he's a prince. This is great. Right? Like she's not, I don't know if uh, uh, disillusioned is the right word there. Um, by like all the royalty and the money and everything. But at the same time, she like possesses such a lack of agency in act one. And I think a lot of that comes back to the, like how her family treats her. Right. Mm -hmm. Of like letting other people make decisions for her, especially like at the end of act one, when the prince actually comes to the house to like try on the shoes with the sisters first, he doesn't recognize that it's Cinderella. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is, well, it's because she has glasses on. Yeah, it's because she has glasses on. It's like Superman and Clark Kent. But he just, like, picks her up and puts her on the horse and they trot away. Like, yeah. it's not... Right. There's not really a moment there where she, like, is like, oh... she's. I feel like it, it, she feels more happy that he came to her and mm. that she's leaving her parents' house than she is to actually, like, be marrying the prince. Yeah, and that gets... I think that gets reinforced by what happens in the second act. I was going to say, that's why I don't think this is... Her story is a parent-neglect story, because mm-hmm. as we... In act two, she gains... I don't want... A, a, she gains agency, I guess, as how you would say that. I don't yeah. know. Like, she sticks up for herself, and mm-hmm. she makes a decision, and, and really, you know, makes a really kind of tough decision... Yeah, so... Um, so we it, love character development. We do love character development. And um, the moment that leads to her character development is sort of somebody else's character development. So the prince sleeps with the baker's wife in the second act. And the birds tell Cinderella... Wait, you mean to tell me that when they were rolling around on the hill, that was actually <laughs> them having intercourse? Yeah, when they cut away and then they cut back and they're wearing slightly less clothes but still... Pretty clothed. <laughs> that was int- I mean, honestly, for a show that they knew kids would see, they go pretty far with with the with some of the mature themes. But yes, the them sleeping together is subtle. I love when shows take fairy tales and make them more mature, or like <laughs> show how mature they actually are. Mm-hmm. It's like a slap in the face. As for long parents. as it's, just as long as it's not for shock value, which I feel like this isn't. But sometimes it's just like all those things you love from your childhood are difficult and bad now, which I don't like. So, uh, Prince Sheets, and and almost immediately afterwards. The prince runs by, quote unquote, looking for the giant and almost doesn't recognize her because she's dressed back in her peasant garb because she left the palace to go. Cause she Back had, on her mother's grave. Right. The birds told her, this is trampled. convoluted, but the birds told her that the grave had been destroyed and she went to, to investigate, which doesn't seem like it needs investigation. Just sort of a sad thing. And they have this like fairly frank conversation where she says, if you love me, why did you stray? And she, she, she sort of like, is like, I have at times wanted more, but I never went and look, looking for it. And then she says, and I pulled up the line because I like it so much. She tells him to imagine that she has died and to, that she was a casualty of the giant and to move on without her. And then she says, my father's house was a nightmare. Your house was a dream. Now I want something in between. Please go. I know it rhymes, but it's not sung. And I, Love this idea of a Cinderella, like, recognizing that moving from, like, poverty to royalty like that is is a form of whiplash, and that in some ways, like, neither is is real the way that a real life would be. So then her happy ending involves her 
kind of making a new family out of the remnants of the survivors. It's very Les Mis where it's like, here's the, here's the four people who survived and everyone else is ghosts now. It's one from each story too. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of is. It, wait, is it, is it exactly one from each story? I never even thought about it. Other than Rapunzel, everybody else's story. Right. Yeah. Has at least one survivor. Right. So at the end of Into the Woods, we're left with uh, the baker. Everyone dies. Everyone dies except for, it's a kid's show. We did it in middle, my middle school. Not everyone explicitly dies in the play, though. It's just, you have the the ending song, and it's, it's like insinuated that everyone who is showing up in that last song is ghosts. Well, I had no idea until you mentioned it to me, Ian, that the royal family was implied to have died while looking for a hidden kingdom. They've just starved to death. Yeah, because it's got... Um, when going to somewhere... When going to hide, know how to get there, there, and eat first. And how to get back and eat first. Yes, yeah. And and that they show up with the ghosts. But it's but I I did not get that implication until it was pointed out to me. Mm-hmm. The only other characters that don't die are the princes. Yeah, the princes are fine. Oh, well, could they have died with their princess, with their new princesses? I feel like it's presented differently. Maybe not. They yeah. don't... There's no reason they would have died, I guess. Except for that there's general chaos. Right. Maybe. The survivors are the baker with his son, uh, Cinderella, and then uh, two kids, Jack from the Jack and the Beanstalk story and Little Red uh, from the Little Red story. story. Yeah, exactly. And they sort of create a found family together where they're going to, like, fix up the baker's cottage and all live together in some capacity. It doesn't feel like the baker and Cinderella are starting some sort of romantic relationship, just that, that they're like, these... Four people have banded together to like support each other as friends in a community and and ultimately and rebuild. They defeated the giant together, so mm-hmm. like, yeah, they're brought together by that. I thought there was one moment when the baker first finds Cinderella and didn't realize she was the princess, mm-hmm. and he was like complimenting her on how beautiful she was. Mm. Yeah, yeah, saying that she looked just like the princess. Yeah, which isn't like explicitly romantic, right? Mm-hmm. But I also wouldn't be surprised if, like, the two of them had formed a romantic connection over time, right? Mm-hmm. We'll find out in Into the Woods 2. <laughs> yeah. God, could you imagine? Produced by James Corden. I mean, if Angela uh... Lerner... If Angela Lerner could make a fan of the opera 2, then anything's possible. One of the things that I think is interesting about that is that if you use the, like, parents and children analysis of Into the Woods, in the first act, Cinderella is a child because her relationships are with... Uh, her parent figures with her mother, with her stepmother. Exactly. And in the second act, she becomes a parent figure. And especially at the end, when she's like, becomes one of two adults in this household. But also, there's this very sweet moment late in the second act where the four survivors who are represented by actors, because the, the baby's not represented by an actor, are in two different places singing all at the same time a song called No One Is Alone, where the, um, which is a gorgeous song, where the baker is sort of fathering Jack and the Cinderella is sort of fathering nope. Mothering? <laughs> sort of mothering uh, Little Red Riding Hood <laughs> and giving advice. It's a very sweet moment. It's interesting to see the idea that Cinderella's happy ending could be forming a blended family in this way. 
Uh, we didn't even mention that, that the slipper is golden in this production, in this version. And a MacGuffin, basically. <laughs> what? And it's a MacGuffin. Yeah. The, there's an overarching thing in the first act where the baker and his wife are searching out the specific items from each story. Just to help tie them all together. Because I think you're right about Little Red thing, that it doesn't all perfectly thematically tie together. It seems definitely that, like, some of the plot things that happen to Little Red seem like it's just a way to get the baker to get the cape. I mean... Mm-hmm. Totally. I mean, same with Rapunzel. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a famous plot hole in, in Into the Woods with Rapunzel, which is that... So the premise is that the baker's father stole the witch's beans, which turned her ugly, and he had two children, one of whom is the baker and the other of whom is Rapunzel. And the witch, mad losing the beans, cursed the family line uh, with... They can't have any more kids. They can't have kids. They're barren. Right. And then Rapunzel uh, bears twins in the desert before the baker lifts the curse. Does does she? Yeah. They change the timeline of it in the movie so that it happens after in the movie. But in the musical, it happens beforehand. Oh, uh, that's a black hole. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yes, the family tree wasn't fully barren. <laughs> it wasn't a very good curse. It was only the men, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Or maybe she liked Rapunzel enough. Well, right, to right. Lift the curse off Rapunzel because yeah. it's her daughter. Yeah. Honestly, the only two that really fit in or like make sense are Cinderella and Jack. I always wondered for Into the Woods of like, what were the forces that be that made sure that all of those items would be circulating in the woods at that at the night of, like, the, the three midnights, right? Like, I was this always destined to happen? Oh, I always just figured it was dumb luck. Like, one of those, like, narrative convenience things. Like, the witch doesn't need a specific red cloak. She just needs a red cloak, and it just happens that Little Red is in the woods with a red cloak. Except, oh, but no, I, and, I oh, but the witch says, when she explains the, the quest, she says, go to the woods. Like, she knows they're all going to be there, so I don't know. And there's this figure called the uh, Mysterious Man, who we learn later is the baker's father, who's been avoiding responsibilities for decades by hiding in the woods, I guess. I mean, he has it right. (laughs) Who, like, seems a little bit more aware of what's happening than everybody else. And he even, like, there's a point where he suggests something to the witch that she's not sure will work that totally does. So it seems like whatever he's been doing in the woods has given him, like, a sense of the overview of everything going on. Because he's often, like, pushing things in the right direction and prompting people to to get items to um, to the baker and his wife. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the woods is, like, this great trope in... Um, a lot of plays and musicals, especially if you look at, like, A Midsummer's Night Dream. Oh, yeah, it's a very Shakespearean thing, this idea that you, like, live in civility, and then you go to the woods where you go wild, and then you come back to civility. Yeah, and you can, like, be yourself in the woods, right? There's, Mm -hmm. like, this freedom, which Mm -hmm. is why um, the song It Takes Two with the baker and the baker's wife, where she's like, you're changed, you're different in the woods, and now we're, like, finally happy, and the pieces are falling into place for the two of us, and, like, isn't this so great? And then they go back to their home, and they're like, we're not entirely happy, right? right. Like, we want more. Yeah. Like, we want to go back to the woods, right. kind of. That's the, well, that's the thing, is the opening of Act 2 is everyone uh, in their homes, first and all, it's the palace now, being like, oh, I'm discontent outside of the woods, and they have to go back to the woods in the second act because of this new force represented by the giant that comes into their lives. But the thing is that the second act ends with them still in the woods. 
Like, there's an implication that they might go back to civility, but there's no civility. Like, they're rebuilding. There's the, no the entire, I mean, they don't talk about the implications of this, but the entire royal, royal family has died. And, and the entire and, village has been crushed. And the entire village has been crushed. So, like, whatever they're rebuilding, I mean, they're living in a, a post-apocalyptic world a little bit. At least in that kingdom, which, like, probably another kingdom would come and invade and take over. Also, another plot hole I just thought of, that beanstalk that that other giant came down is still around. It's unclear how many giants live up there, I guess. Yeah. So just a direct line to a single house. That's that's what it feels in most, like, filmic adaptations of Jack and the Beanstalk. There's just a castle in the clouds, so to speak. Then why don't they climb up it and go live up there? I mean, the furniture's too big. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but but also i mean the so the witch's beans which are precious to her and her family which is why her mother cursed her with old age when they went away are the ones that grow the beanstalks and at the, when she does her terrific 11 o'clock number last midnight she throws handfuls of them um giants by the score right exactly so um into the woods too there are versions of into the woods where like as she's throwing them, the four characters remaining are, like, running around and picking them up before they can sprout. I guess I always assumed you couldn't possibly get all of them. It depends on if she's throwing handfuls or one at a time. Yeah. I've usually seen it done one at a time. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and usually, at least in the Broadway production, the beans are mimed. Like, they're not. there's no physical object. Yeah. Everyone's just, like, doing object work. I like in the revival how they're like little mini fireworks. <laughs> they just like shoot at the grid. They like oh, they're just puppets. Yeah, they're puppets. Uh, yeah, that's cute. It's really yeah. cute. Final thoughts. I love this. I I think that every person who's has any interest in the theater should see it to the woods at some point. I think it's accessible enough for people who aren't into theater and just love fairy tales or Disney movies too. Yes. Like, yeah. Absolutely. It's. And also, go watch the stage adaptation and not the movie. Mm-hmm. It's They are two entirely different shows. There's so much that they cut out yeah. for the movie. And also, James Corden as the baker just isn't it. Of the roles he's been casting in movie musicals, he's done worse. I agree. I agree. And in terms of, in terms of movie musical adaptations, I don't think Into the Woods is a bad adaptation. No. It's just... They changed so much. Well, yeah. The mysterious Disney. man isn't in it at all. They cut bit. out. So- He's in it a little bit. He shows up like twice, very briefly in a flashback, and then I think we see him in the woods like for a whole second. They cut out the one my night gone. They cut out a lot of the songs. Yeah. Um, they don't have a narrator. Yeah, they don't have a narrator. Well, James Corden is narrating, but it's kind of like a. It's like a voiceover narration. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Well, well, right, which ties back into the like open air production idea because. At the end of Into the Woods, the very last thing that happens on stage before the final song is that the baker begins to tell the story of what happened uh, to his infant son to try to, like, keep him from crying. He uses the same word that the narrator uses at the beginning. So I think the movie's just playing into that cycle. And I actually, I like that they did that. You could not do that in a stage adaptation just because of the way the script is. It would be extremely difficult to have the baker do narrator and... And die in the middle of the second act. And die in the middle of the second act (laughs) while he's also a spectator of his own death. Like, no. Right. Be very meta. Yeah. I'd like to watch a production that tried. (laughs) Well, we should put one together. Better run along home and avoid the collision. Even though they don't care, you'd be better off there where there's nothing to choose, so there's nothing to lose. So you pry up your shoes and promote the blue. And without any guide, 
you know what your decision is, which is not to decide. You'll just leave him a clue. For example, a shoe. And then see what he'll do. Now it's he and not you who is stuck with a shoe in a stew, in the goo. And you've learned something too. And I've learned something too. Something you never knew. And I've learned something too that, that I, I never, 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 never knew before. In the land of the giants. So we've just watched Lottie Reininger's, am I saying that? Mm-hmm. Uh, Shadow Puppet Cinderella adaptation. What did you all think? It's dark. I liked it. Like physically, like literally dark or like? Tone wise, mm-hmm. it reminds me almost like like a Tim Burton or like a Coraline-esque mm-hmm. representation of it. Definitely. Well, it's also an adaptation of the Grimm Brothers version of the story. So it has the cutting off of the heel and the um, magic from a tree thing going on. And the lentils. And the lentils. One of the things that I really liked about it is that it really celebrates that it is a shadow puppet story. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing is stop motion. And it begins with this like stop motion animation of like hands cutting out the paper doll of Cinderella. Mm-hmm. And then there's these like interstitial titles between sequences that tell you what's going to happen next. And they're all like punctuated with the word snip. Just to remind you that everything is, is from scissors, which I think is really cute. Mm-hmm. And then it, it really makes use of different apertures. It's never like, here's the rectangle of your screen completely filled with with what's going on. It's always like, here's a window or here's a... And the windows are usually pointy to also reinforce that it's cut out. It's interesting to see Cinderella told like this without words, because there were definitely some parts where I was not sure what was happening. Yeah, like when Cinderella left the shoe and then there was like the jester and the two other men, but like the a bird flew out of one of the men's hats. Yeah. Like, that was very strange. Yeah, that yeah. was the one part where I was like, I have no like, idea what's happening. Mm-hmm. I, I think I know the story, but who are these two men? Yeah. <laughs> Why did he pay a jester to do something with the shoe? And I mean, there were words, because it was it was more like a silent film type words, though, mm-hmm. where there were like title cards telling you what was happening, mm-hmm. um, just without voice acting. Yeah. I guess I'd heard of Lottie Redinger before from her body of work. Do you feel like you can explain? Because you introduced us to this. Yeah, so I I had to watch this for class that I took a few years ago and that I am now TAing. So Lottie Reininger was kind of the first person to make like shadow puppetry films like this. She was just like a pioneer in this type of work. And Disney ripped off a lot of her work without giving her credit, without hiring her to do it. Well, I didn't know she invented the multiplane camera, which became really significant to Disney animation. Yeah, no, that was her. And I think it's interesting that, like, Disney uses a lot of her stuff, but then a lot of people actually don't know who she is or have never heard of her. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, I guess I'll say, like, the representation of her work that most people are probably familiar with is from... Harry Potter's The Deathly Hallows, there is the scene, like the story of the three brothers is very much done in the style of Lottie Renninger. She made a lot of films. They're all very intricately designed. I just think it's interesting. Tonally, I feel like it takes on a darker perspective, not only from it being grim, but also because it's shadow puppets. And like the way that the shadow puppets move is not fluid. It's very... 
uh, staccato, right? It's uh, like unnatural movements, which I think kind of adds to the eerie tone. And then the music also does a little bit to help as well. Mm-hmm. Like the, the music at the end with the happy ending is almost ominous. Oh, yeah. Bit. I was like, are they going to go off a cliff in the yeah. carriage or something? I don't know. I thought they were going to die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can see the comparison to Coraline, though, because the the character proportions are, are very exaggerated. And angular. And very angular. Mm-hmm. Especially the stepsisters, which I think works really well for this medium. I also love that, like, the eyeballs move, right? Mm-hmm. Like, people literally have eyeballs, like, rolling around uh, in a full circle. That's a classic shadow puppet thing, too. Like, that's <laughs> peak shadow puppet. I have not seen enough shadow puppets, I guess. I don't know where I would have. Uh, it's interesting because there's like some storytelling problems you run into if you're trying to tell the story of Cinderella without words or with only like occasional words, like things that are hard to explain without dialogue. Like the you can't go to the ball moment, I didn't think was very clear. But then when they're hiding Cinderella from the prince when he's coming around with the shoe to try it on people, they show them like forcing Cinderella into a cellar with a trap door. Instead of just, like, keeping her in the kitchen or something. Right. But it's clear that she is very visibly, visually hidden from us. The other visual thing I like is that there's this um, repeated image of clock hands, especially in the ball sequence. But Cinderella and the prince are on the hour and minute hands. So, like, as the hands get closer to each other, like, they're getting closer to meeting in that sequence, which I think is kind of a cute image. Yeah. And also, this one focused a lot on the actual, like meeting and relationship between the prince and Mm -hmm. Cinderella, which I appreciated. We actually spent like a decent amount of time with the two of them together. Mm -hmm. It seems like the grim one does that a lot more than the Perot. Right. Well, in this version doesn't do like the three meetings, but the grim version does have them like, like meeting over the course of three nights, Mm. which is interesting. It's not just love at first sight. They're getting to know each other. Mm -hmm. Ideally. (laughs) They kissed in this one. They did. Multiple times. Yeah. And then he still, we always run into this, like, why don't you recognize this woman? He, yeah. you know, she, he chases her away from the ball and then her dress transforms back. The animation where she, her dress is formed and then unformed are both very beautiful. And then she's like sobbing at the base of the tree, which is just a, the magic tree in this. It's not explained that it's her mother's tree. Mm-hmm. And he like runs up to her and he's like, oh, crying girl. A poor. Yeah. I also love that it probably meant something different then than it does now. The mother was like, they don't want sluts at the ball, so you can't go. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. Well, there's two interpretations. Either of them are fun. Like, either Cinderella, despite being depressed by her stepfamily, sleeps around, which, like, Mm -hmm. good for her. Or, so my understanding is that the word slut used to mean someone who keeps her room untidy. But, like, why would they select her that at the ball? Why would that matter? And also, like, she's the one who cleans the house, presumably, (laughs) so they would all be the sluts, and she would be the one who cleans up after them. Next season, we'll get an etymology guest to come on, tell us about (laughs) words that we don't know about. And then the stepmother just eats it at the end, like, she just splits in half. Oh, she, yeah, yeah, she doesn't just die, she actually breaks in half, and the stepsisters are not sure what to do. And I wouldn't be either. (laughs) So that's Lottie Reiniger's Cinderella, it's 13 minutes long, it's on YouTube, Emily, since we have you here, yes, you have a story pitch for us. What story is a Cinderella? Okay, so this is one of my favorite movies ever. I watch it all the time. It is DreamWorks Trolls. Like the little troll dolls from the 90s and they made it into a movie is absolutely 100% a Cinderella story because of 
What's her name? What's her name? I know it. Poppy? No. Bridget. Bridget. <laughs> Voiced by Zoe Deschanel. Uh-huh. Also known as Lady Glitter Sparkles. So she is a scullery maid for the chef who like cooks up all the trolls. So it's not like a parental figure. It's more of just uh Bridget is subservient to this this chef character who is not very nice to her, and she's in love with King Gristle. Well, but I also have to say that the the chef is played by former Wicked stepmother Christine Baranski from the Into the Woods movie. Yes, yes, she is. Anyway, so Bridget is in love with King Gristle, who she actually, it seems like she grew up around because she's worked as a scullery maid in the castle for a really long time. They're clearly similar ages. Yeah, they're similar ages. And with the help of the trolls, they give Bridget a makeover. So they're the ones who like design her outfit and they like extend their hair to give her a wig and they like tell her what to say on her date with King Gristle. And she's like trying to be this total babe which involves in the world of the trolls which involves like roller skates and yes. rainbows and, and an ariana grande song it's, that's like the ball right uh, do they go to a roller disco or something where do they go on their date they go to like a roller skating place yeah. and they have pizza and then the chef shows up and was like we need to get king gristle fitted for his bib or something like that like mm-hmm. you need to leave and then bridget like runs away and and leaves one of her roller skates there and um one of my favorite moments in the movie is when king gristle goes to like kiss the bottom of the roller skating shoe but the wheels are still turning and he like gets brush burn on his lips um it's it's a 10 out of 10 that movie is so cute and she does end up showing up at the end as the scullery maid to like the big dinner at the end and then the trolls come in halfway through to like save her and they like put the wig hair back on her and it's all like skewed so that everyone knows that she's Lady Glitter Sparkles uh-huh. what I love about the trolls movie and I've only seen it because I live with you and I highly recommend <laughs> It, is that they go to the castle to try to stop the king from eating the trolls. And then they meet Bridget and they're like, okay, put everything else on hold. We have to we have to save this scullery maid's love life. She's so sad, yeah. yeah. <laughs> she also, like, she has behind her bed, like, behind a curtain, like, an entire collage of King Gristle behind her bed with, like, hearts that she's, like, cut out from magazines and, like, basically a huge scrapbook wall. Uh-huh. Um, oh, it's fantastic. So, obviously, she's Cinderella. The stepmother is the chef. Yeah, there are no stepsisters. Right, but the, the world could kind of be the stepsisters. And the trolls are the fairy godmother. The trolls are the fairy godmother. And then King Gristle is the prince. Yes. I think we hit all the marks. That feels like it hits all the marks. That's I, the ball? There was a moment while I was watching it where the movie where I, where I was like, this feels like you could argue that it's like a Cyrano de Bergerac story. But I, I think maybe the Cyrano de Bergerac story is also a Cinderella story. I think like they go hand in hand. Sort of yes, like how yes. people talk about like Hunchback of Notre Dame and fandom mm-hmm. stories together where it's like, Ugly man who lives and, in a building. <laughs> you know? yeah. So maybe it's part of just part of all that same trope. Because them like telling her how to talk is not a thing that the fairy godmother usually does, but No, because the fairy godmother usually isn't there for all of it. Mm-hmm. Or where Whitney Houston would just be followed around yeah. with Billy D. <laughs> she does just show up in that movie. I fully endorse this as a Cinderella story. I mean it it's it's not even subtle. It mm-hmm. it absolutely is like a direct Cinderella's. Yeah, they, also, they do the shoe thing. Yeah. I also co-sign on this endorsement. Have you ever seen it? I've seen clips of it. 
Okay, we all need to watch it then. It is it is a crime that you have not seen this movie. <laughs> Um, it's so cute. It's when so I've seen cute. clips of it, it was during a dark point in my life. So well. It is my ultimate comfort movie. It's like if Evan comes home late at night and I'm on the couch with like a tub of ice cream watching Trolls, I've probably had a really shit day. Yeah, my first impulse would be like, what's wrong? What happened? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we watched Trolls and Trolls World Tour in the same night, I think. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And then I like went and home the next weekend for did. like two months. You did, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't even remember what had happened. I just needed to watch Trolls. Trolls World Tour is not a Cinderella story, and I don't know if I can recommend that one as much. The first one is better. The second one is like a weird fever dream. I made my dad watch it, and he goes, Emily, I feel like I'm on drugs right now. Like, what is this movie? Are we going to get Trolls 3? Maybe. Maybe. Trolls World Tour was a huge, like, beginning of the pandemic hit. It made a ton of money, a ton more than they, I think they expected it to make, or maybe even more than it would have made if it had a traditional theatrical release because they released it digitally right as things were shutting down. So they've certainly made a bunch of like little small things in the Trolls universe since then. They've made like an animated show, which is terrible. I have only watched a little bit of it and I, I would not recommend that. I think they did like a holiday short I just remember them singing Love Train like that as one of the covers that they did, which was cute. I really like that song and the cover was good. Yep. Can't go wrong with Trolls. Anna Kendrick, Justin Timberlake. The only perfect movie. Justin Timberlake wants to make seven Trolls movies, so. What? Why? Yes. <laughs> seven? I am here for it. It's like, look, I don't care if they progressively get worse each time. Uh-huh. I will be here to watch all of them. Yeah. Much like my father has seen every single Sharknado movie multiple times. Right. This is your Sharknado. This is my Sharknado. Everyone needs good. a Sharknado. Good. What's your Sharknado? Is it Glee? It might be Glee. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that sound of a clock chiming midnight means it's time to wrap up this episode of If the Shoe Fits. Emily, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Do you have anything to promote? I am the podcast producer of the podcast Being Human this school year with the University of Pittsburgh. It is hosted by Dan Cubis, and each month he interviews someone different in academia, usually about a new book that they have out, and it's just about conversations about the role of the humanities in our daily lives. And we'll have a link to that in the podcast description. Join us again in two weeks' time. We're going back to the House of Mouse. We're going to be talking about some uh, newer Cinderella's. And we'll see you then. <laughs>